Hi everyone, my name's Steve Tudor and welcome to the Friday Show. It's a show that passed it to GCSE yesterday, which of course stands for General Carousing, Sitting and Eating. We got an A+. Today we're going to be looking at the ins and outs of this weekend's two European finals that will finally draw a veil over the 2019-20 season. We say finally because when this season's Champions League began, Theresa May was still the Prime Minister and Stormzy was still a fortnight away from storming Glastonbury. In short, it's taken its sweet, sweet time. But here we now are, relishing the prospect of Sevilla taking on a prolific Inter, and PSG coming up against a seemingly unstoppable Bayern. To cover these games, 9320 is delighted to welcome back a journalist who's only failing in supporting a club that lets him down time after time, season after season. It's Harry De Cosmo. Hi, Harry. How are you, mate? Cheers, Steve. How are you? I'm good, thank you. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist that. <laughs> uh, for anyone who's not aware of Harry and hasn't uh, listened to a pod uh, with Harry on before, it's uh, Newcastle. He's sporting it, mate. I think the last time we, I was on, the Saudi Arabian takeover was possible. Yes. Um, and since then, just I mean, uh, the, the fix just coming out yesterday, was it's supposed to be a, a joyous occasion. <laughs> for many people, it is. For me, it's just sort of penciling in the diaries of like, okay, it could be above seventeenth there and there. And <laughs> there. It's just, yeah, it's, it's it's not particularly great fun. Um. <laughs> if I mean, obviously, it's Sports City now. It's, uh, I'm living in Dreamland, but for the majority of my life, I realised set a low bar, and that's you can't be disappointed that way. It's it's the best way. Yeah, well, the the the, the sad thing is that when I started supporting Newcastle, the bar was high. Um, yes. I was bo- yeah. I was born in 1994, um, so born at the height of the Keegan, just before the height of the Keegan era. Uh, started going to games at the height of the Bobby Robson era, and as I've got older, they've got worse. So, um, yeah, <laughs> um, we're also chuffed to have a debutant with us today, a splendid writer and a splendid fellow whose Leicester leanings means he will probably start the pod really well, then dip towards the end. It's Charlie Carmichael. Hi, <laughs> <Hiya>, Charlie. Hi, <laughs> uh, Stephen. How are you? I'm all right, mate. Thanks very much for joining us today. Um, we'll hopefully have time to kind of squeeze in a, a Leicester question because, well, I mean, we could get out of the way now if you want and just kind of whiz through it. It's when, when you see the kind of Champions League games happening in the past couple of weeks, obviously Leicester, it looked nailed on, didn't it, for you to have Champions League? Is it kind of made it worse or have you kind of, are you seeking solace in the fact that Europa League is, is just a thoroughly enjoyable competition? Yeah, uh, I, th- I think I've kind of made my peace with it now. I mm. think at the time it was, uh, you know, pr- pretty uh, horrible to experience. Um, but, you know, I'm with you, obviously, from a, a Manchester City context. You know, I, I kind of caught the back end of the Martin O'Neill era. But uh, after that, all I've kind of known is sort of second division stuff and a bit of and a bit in the third division for one season as well. Yeah. Um, so obviously, you know, to go from that to rising to the pinnacle to winning the league in 2016 was just absolute dreamland and I think a lot of our fans still kind of pinching themselves a bit but obviously with that has brought raised expectations so you know if you told me a few years ago that oh, we'd just miss out on Champions League football to Manchester United on the last day of the season and everyone would be gutted you'd be turning around you know thinking what's going on here but yeah obviously it's uh you know they're the expectations and that's the reality now and it's it was incredibly disappointing considering how well we got off to um and I think it really coincided, um, you know, if you're into your conspiracy theories with Brendan Rodgers uh, being touted as the new Arsenal manager. Oh, really? Uh, after, yeah. So we kind of sort of started to tail off at the, the back end of December. And then 2020 has just, you know, been a nightmare for, well, it's been a nightmare for everyone, but a nightmare for Leicester as yeah. well. Um, and yeah, before, prior to uh, Arteta getting the gig, after Emery got booted, uh, Rodgers was heavily linked with a job and we managed to lock him down to a new five-year contract. And uh yeah, coincidentally, since then, it's all been downhill. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, I can't think of any examples that spring to mind, but I do know of so many times, particularly with fo- actual players, whenever they sign contracts, their forms just dip. So it could conceivably be the case with managers, I guess. It's kind of some kind of security issue where you think, OK, I'm here for long term now. Not complacency, it's too simplistic to s- suggest that, but there's definitely occasions in the past where players and managers... You know, they get their kind of futures resolved, and then for some weird reason, they go on at like a three month dip. Um, right, well, let's kind of turn our attentions to well, tonight's final. Uh, let's start with um, Inter Milan. Um, so, you, Harry, they're one point, they were, sorry, one point away from winning Serie A. Uh, they've scored goals by the bag full this season. 
How job, uh, good, good a job has Conte done uh, since he's uh, switched over to Italy? Uh, a really good job. Um, uh, I thought he would... I, I, I did tip Inter for the title last season. I don't know it's easy to say now, but I did. I wrote a piece at the start of last season saying I fancy um, Inter to go all the way because Juve hiring Sarri with Ronaldo. There's so many problems there. It didn't... It, it, it didn't. It was a sort of mismatch of a of philosophies yeah. that was always going to collide badly. Uh, Conte, you know, got what he wanted, which is really strange considering he's now started his typical thing of attacking the board. Um, <laughs> you know, if he just behaves himself, into into can go far. But the trouble is, he he doesn't tend to do that for very long. Yeah. Um, but buying Lukaku, who's the player he wanted at Chelsea, and and ended up getting Morata. Um, you know, getting Ericsson in in January, that, and obviously Lukaku Martinez, who they're, they're unlikely to be able to keep for very long, I think, in truth, um, because because so many clubs are going to be chasing him. But he's done a really good job to sort of to sort of mesh everything together in a way that Juve haven't been able to do. Everything is geared towards the way he wants it to 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 be, despite what um, despite what he says. That's that's just the way it's been. So he, he's done a very good job, um, and I, I think they're they're well placed. But obviously, you say that it was the, it was the closest uh, Scudetto um, finishing table at least since two thousand and two, mm. which says a lot about what Juve Juve are really more than, uh, or at least as much as what Juve are as what Inter are. Uh, but for for long periods, they, they did tail off, and and I think in a similar sort of way to to the way Liverpool did it in the Premier League this season as against the last season. There were a few times, a few, there were games and runs of, of games in Serie A where Inter didn't capitalise in the way that uh, that uh, Liverpool didn't in in, in eighteen ninety, and then they came back and just and just and just stormed it. I think that I'm not sure that will happen in the same way, but I think that sort of principle can can happen again in in, in Serie A if Inter can find a, a consistency that they didn't quite have in the league at all times this season. Then, then the sky's the limit domestically. I don't know um, uh, if they can ever reach the, the Mourinho heights in the Champions League, but, but they've certainly you know mended themselves in the way that they haven't in the last decade. Well, that's interesting, that kind of Liverpool comparison. Um, Charlie, do you kind of go along with that? I mean, there is obviously a danger that they may, may lose, say, Martinez in this window. Um, you know, there's some players who have really excelled this year. And, you know, there's always a possibility that they might kind of lose a couple of players here and there. But... With Ronaldo, you'd expect him surely now. He can't be going on for forever. Uh, Ronaldo's form, you'd expect that an influence would wane next season. Could could Inter have a real kind of like a Liverpool season essentially next year? Yeah, I think as Harry alluded to, a lot of that hinges on uh, Antonio Conte and kind of whether he can kind of keep everything together. <laughs> yeah, He's I such an emotionally charged manager. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, he demands so much of his players um, and, you know, that, that can lead to burnout, that can lead to fallouts. But when it clicks, as you can see, it's, it's magical. Um, obviously, as Harry mentioned that, you know, Juventus have been so dominant. It was Antonio Conte that kick-started that era. He went into Juventus, he won their you know, first Scudetto in quite a few years and, uh, you know, really what, you know, Max Allegri then went on to build after, off the back of that. Um, and obviously Sarri now, you know, such as the dominance of Inter that you could, uh, sorry, Juventus, that you can win the Serie A title and you can still be sacked. Um, <laughs> so it really shows you, you know, what 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 everyone else is up against. And, it, you know, the same with Valverde in Barcelona. Uh, he was on course to lead them to another title and, you know, he got the chop before he got the uh, honour of doing that and Real Madrid pipped them. So, we're kind of living in this era where you've got such dominance from the likes of Bayern, Juventus, Barcelona, that to, to finish a point behind is massive credit to Antonio Conte. Yeah, absolutely. And a, a large part of that came from their goals and their strike partnership of Martinez and Lukaku. Um, was it 54 goals across all competitions between the pair, which is astonishing. Um, just concentrating on the latter and just kind of staying with you, Charlie, what do you attribute to Lukaku's upsurge in form since leaving United? Well, I mean, I think Lukaku has always been uh, a phenomenally gifted forward um, and he certainly had a raw deal at United. Um, you know, he didn't turn into a bad player overnight, uh, but, you know, the system that United played didn't suit him. Obviously, you look at how Anthony Martial thrived, particularly since the restart and that kind of, you know, more free-flowing, fluid football linking with the likes of Rashford and Greenwood. Um, Lukaku has always been someone, you know, who if you, if you play to his strengths, he will score goals. It's yeah. guaranteed. We saw it at West Brom. We saw it at Everton. We've now seen it uh, into Milan. 
And obviously, if you look at Conte's side from the Chelsea title winning era uh, and how heavily utilised Diego Costa was in that team. And, you know, as, as Harry mentioned, again, the, uh, that he wanted to bring Lukaku into that side as well. You can really see, you know, and the partnership that he's got with uh, Martinez has just been devastating. 23 goals for Lukaku in Serie A this season, 14 for Martinez. Um, and it just seems to have worked so well for them. Um, I can't remember who, who the player was now, but there was a player this week who suggested that the reason, it might have been Paul Ince actually, who suggested the reason that Lukaku struggled at Old Trafford was he was burdened with the pressure of being a Manchester United centre-forward. Um, Harry, I really don't know where I, I stand on this. I'm very much on the fence. On the one hand, yes, I get it. On the other hand, you think, well, it's not exactly kind of all, you know, roses and daisies playing as a centre-forward for Inter Milan. You know, pressure comes if you're a centre-forward for a leading club, doesn't it? Or is there a special kind of pressure that's put on, you know, a number nine at Manchester United? I think we'll get into a general conversation about sort of pre- about uh, the club and, and pressures when we talk about the Champions League final. But mm. um, I think with with Lukaku, one 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 crucial thing that has happened to Lukaku um, in between this last season when he was poor or poor or, or struggling or whatever you want to say, and this season where he's been on fire, and before when he was on fire at Everton as well, and even it's a good start at Man United, he's he's lost weight. Um, yeah. he, he was he, he was he's powerful, but he's not too he's not overly powerful in the in the sense that you know people compare him to Drogba, but actually I think he's he's better when he's a bit leaner than Drogba. Drogba was was all power and, and you know and bustle and, and all that, but Lukaku's good on the on the shoulder. He's good when he's a bit leaner, and he got a little bit too stocky when he was at Man United, I think, and and that's a, a, a physical difference well, that, that's going to yeah. make an impact. I mean, you say um, about physical impact. I mean, there's reports um, that there's a, a medical issue. Uh, you had a muscle problem at United, and that was undiagnosed. Um, and then as soon as he went to Inter, a medic there diagnosed it. They, they kind of you know, sorted it out, and that's what they're attributing it to. I mean, that's, if that's the case, my God, that's amateur hour at United, isn't it? Well, well yeah, and and I think that. There is a, the, in terms of the first question, I think there is a sort of thing about, there is a, maybe not just about Man United generally, but at Man United specifically, what was happening, I think, was he was scoring goals and then it wasn't enough. He would still get criticised because, you know, people would, he would score, he could score two goals and people would still criticise his first touch or something like that. Whereas Inter, yeah. everything is geared towards him in the, in the sense that, that he, going back to what I was saying about Conte wanting him at Chelsea, He's built the team around Lukaku. This is a team that, that is geared towards him in an easier, sort of less physical, less pacey, less intense league as well, which might have an impact. Um, but I do, I do genuinely, I do understand that point to a degree um, because of, but in more specific sense, because um, whenever he was, you know, whenever he, even when he was doing well, he would still get criticised for his first touch. There isn't much criticism of him. Going on, going on in Italy. It's all geared towards him. He's really impressive, and he just feels freer, happier, but also a lot um, leaner. And I think all those things mashed together have, have turned him into this this player that we all knew he was anyway. But you know, it, yeah. it's it, it's just settled in a bit better. Well, as a Manchester City fan, it's behold on me to say that there's YouTube clips out there of his first touch. <laughs> you know, it's just a compilation of his kind of first touches, and it's a wonder to behold. It really is. Um, Let's turn now to Sevilla, um, their sixth final since 2005. Um, no other club in the world has reached more um, European finals than Sevilla um, this century, which is incredible. Um, they've really built up a strong relationship with this competition, and it's really hard to kind of work out precisely why. Uh, their owner said uh, this week, Charlie, that Sevilla always bets on the Europa League. Um but still, they just come through time and time again. That doesn't explain it to me. Um, is there any way of explaining it? Yeah, well, I think every club would kind of like to know what Sevilla's magic <laughs> yeah. formula is. Um, but no, I mean, I think, you know, obviously a lot of it, you know, there, there is luck involved. Um, you know, they've been phenomenal. I mean, we started the podcast by talking about Leicester's season of two halves. I mean, 
Sevilla up to sort of February time, um, pre-lockdown, were were very poor. There was fans calling for Lopetegui to be sacked. Um, they scraped through the round of 32 against Club Cluj on, on away goals. And there was a real animosity and a real ill feeling towards the team at that point. Since the restart, they've, they're have they undefeated in all 20 games they've played. Um, it's absolutely phenomenal. They've knocked out Roma. They've knocked out Wolves. They've knocked out Manchester United. And as you say, they've got pedigree in this competition. And I think you can't understate the psychological belief that they have, that they can just beat anyone in this competition on their day. Harry, it's, it's a certain clubs that seem to have love affairs with certain tournaments. I mean, I'm, I was thinking of, say, Real Madrid with the Champions League in recent times. Um, there's other examples in, in the League Cup. I mean, are there other examples and, and kind of, as as Charlie said, really, it, it's impossible to actually think of a reason why this is. It's, and a lot of it would just be down to just luck and circumstance, wouldn't it? Yeah, uh, I think that, that there's definitely uh, merit in, in, in that argument. But I also think that mentality is a thing. I said after Man City got knocked out to Leon, a text with a friend said, money doesn't buy mentality. And what I mean by that is, um, if you look at if you look at Liverpool in the Premier League against Man City in the Premier League, who it, it was it was this sort of big thing for for Liverpool they had to overcome. Whilst for Man City it, it didn't feel like a big deal when they won the title. It's kind of the opposite way in the Champions League, where mm. where Liverpool felt more at home in the Champions League than Man City did, and they always have done. Uh, Real Madrid the same. They've always felt quite at home in the Champions League. Although I will say, you know, it, it's easy to say that Real Madrid have. It's great love affair with the Champions League because obviously they did. They've won it 13 times and they won it four times in five years recently and yeah. five times in a row in the 1950s and things. But they also, you know, at the turn of the century, they couldn't get past the last 16 stage and they would often be beaten by Leon of all teams. So they've had this struggle at, at times as well. But I do think that there is a sort of thing where it's a, it's, it's a general club mentality where once you've done it and done it so many times I mean especially when you get into a, a rhythm of doing it in the way that Sevilla did where they won it they've not just won it five times they've won it twice in a row and then three times in a row so you get in a sort of rhythm which is Absolutely, sort of a, a yeah, strange yeah. thing to it's a strange thing to say for a cup, for a cup competition because it shouldn't work like that because cup competitions by nature are that you know there's the look of the draw and the look of uh, you know one mistake can, can cost you one bit of brilliance can, can bring it for you but um so there is so many sort of factors that mean that it's it's difficult to 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 sort of make it make a point about it and, and understand why it, why it happens. But I do think that, that 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 there is a mentality thing, and Sevilla as a club just feel at home in the Europa League the way that Man City have become at home in the Premier League. I know they didn't win it this season, but you know what I mean. In the last couple of years, Chelsea were in the same thing. Man City in the League Cup, Arsenal in the FA Cup, Real Madrid in the Champions League. The, the, it happens too often for it to just be coincidence. Yeah. Well, I, I find this fascinating. I really do. And I, I hope, I'd like to devote a whole pod to it one day because it kind of, it's indicative of a club being an entity in itself because we look at Sevilla and we look at their kind of love affair with Europa League and we are talking about different managers. We're talking about completely different teams. I think when they won on consecutive years, it might have been the 2006, seven. I can't remember, but there was consecutive years where he won it where there was only two players, basically, who played in both finals. Um, so you're looking at completely different individuals, and yet the club itself does develop this love affair with, with a tournament. And as you said, just get into a rhythm, which does suggest that, you know, a club has an entity. You know, it has some kind of soul, if, if it's not, not too pretentious to suggest so. Um, so let's go back to the modern day Sevilla then. Um, where do their strengths lie, Charlie? Well, I mean, Lopetegui tends to opt for a 4-3-3 formation and uh, obviously being a Manchester City fan, I'm sure you're aware of uh, Jesus Navas, yes. although obviously, uh, you know, more of a winger by trade uh, during his time at City. Uh, he's now a marauding Trent Alexander-esque <laughs> right back, uh, which is quite the transformation. Um, and yeah, Regulion on the other side, he's been heavily, he's on loan from Real Madrid, been linked with uh, Chelsea and the, the two of them just create so much from out wide. You know, it is, you know, comparable, I guess, to Robertson and Alexander-Arnold at Liverpool. Um, you've got Benega, who kind of sits in the middle of the park and kind of knits things together, uh, dictates things. And then Ocampos, who kind of plays on either side of the front man. Um, he's their top goal scorer this season. He kind of dominates the half spaces and he's a real threat from coming in from out wide. Well, what's your prediction then for the uh, for the final the kind of scoreline for Inter Sevilla? 
so I guess, I guess to caveat all of the praise that I've just heaped on Sevilla, <laughs> uh, I'm going to say 2-0 uh, to Inter Milan. Um, what I found really interesting, if you look at the semi-final of Inter Milan, was they won 5-0 against Shakhtar. They had 37% possession. Yeah, uh, yeah. It was 1-0 until the 64th minute, and then by the 84th, 20 minutes later, they'd, they'd scored four goals. Um, so, you know, they have this explosive capacity with the likes of Lukaku and Martinez. They're very sound defensively. I think they'd be more than happy to give Sevilla the ball and let them play in front of them. But I just think they've got too much for them. OK. Uh, Harry, do you kind of agree with that? Anything you disagree with there? Yeah, I, I, I also think uh, two nils a good, uh, one or two nil to Inter is a good, a good sort of ballpark where the game's going to go because um, both teams are, have been defensively strong in the in recent weeks. I don't think Sevilla have conceded a goal in open play since July the 9th, if I'm right. Um, and Inter have, have, have only conceded uh, to buy Leverkusen in the quarters, um, and they and so so it's not going to be a uh, that suggests it's not going to be a, a goal fest. But I think Inter's Quality, but through Lukaku and through Martinez, which we've already discussed, is going to be the difference, and uh, and and they'll just edge edge away with the game in the way that in the way that Conte's teams obviously uh, often do, and uh, you know I mean we say this, but because I when you know we spoke about Real Madrid and, and all that, I think both times they played Atletico, at least one of the times I fancied Atletico to win, yeah. and then you and then and then they don't, and then you think well obviously Real Madrid are going to win the Champions League. I think I kind of think if, if Sevilla win, we'll, we'll come back tomorrow thinking, well, why did we doubt Sevilla? But uh, I, I, but having said that, I do kind of think that that uh, that, that Inter, that they're both very similar in terms of their their defensive capabilities, but uh, Inter have that that explosive attack, and that and that'll probably be the difference. Yeah, I'm, I'm very much in agreement. Uh, I think uh, big finals tend to be won by you know big strikers, um, and Inter have two. Um, very dangerous front men. So, for that reason, I, I'll go along with, with you guys and say kind of 1 0, 2 0 to Inter. Um, possibly not the most entertaining final as well, I'd, I would say. Um, and maybe not in comparison to the Champions League final this Sunday. Um, so, turn our attentions to that. Charlie, there's some ethical debate about, well, in the quarter final stages at least, there was some ethical debate about Leipzig and Manchester City and PSG and their respective models and, the, and their owners. Um, and there's you know certain journalists kind of getting knickers and twists and saying you know this is kind of not where football should be going. Um, so we look at it now and we look at PSG in the final against Bayern Munich, and I've been kind of staggered to see that Bayern Munich are being portrayed as you know the pure football club, the club with the, the kind of you know the pure ethics. And Bayern Munich are never the good guys, are they? <laughs> um. No, I mean, I'd have to agree. I mean, you know, football as society is just full of hypocrisies. Everyone loves to point the finger at everyone else and say, oh, well, you don't do this. And, yeah. and we're, we're morally upstanding. But then you dig into it and you say, well, hang on a sec, you you know, you do this. Um, you look at Bayern Munich, uh, they've got sponsorship ties with Qatar themselves. They both have club shops in Doha Airport. Yeah. Um, they've tried to ban a section of their, their own supporters for protesting against their sponsorship deals with Qatar. Um, so this is by no means a, a one-way street Um against PSG that said you you can't you know overstate the importance of you know what this means to the state of Qatar and why PSG are where they are yeah, um, yeah, you know this is a, a project funded by a Middle Eastern Gulf state um, you know through its sovereign wealth fund in order to uh, you know facilitate a positive global image of of the Middle East um, you know they, they haven't done it because they, they love football. They haven't done it because they really wanted to just be attached to Neymar uh, or Mbappe or some of the world's best players. You know, this is strictly about diversifying revenue streams away from oil and projecting a positive brand image away from the humanitarian issues that exist within that country. OK, well, that's an interesting point, especially with the, um, the, the Saudi Arabian takeover in Newcastle that didn't kind of follow through. Um, Harry, we've, we've kind of touched on this in previous pods, but... Where do you stand on the concept of sports washing? Um, as soon as kind of Saudi Arabian consortium were interested in Newcastle, all the emphasis was kind of placed on them in a very negative fashion. Um, whereas prior to them being interested in Newcastle, they could essentially, in terms of you know the British press uh, and public, they could just go about their business kind of unhindered. So, it, it, is there two sides to this? Does does would sports washing work in theory? Sports washing does exist, um, even at Newcastle so far. Uh, you've, you've seen um, fans 
the, the discourse and, and the and the attitude of this of this failed takeover mm. uh, has been all one way to the Premier League to the Premier League it's all the Premier League sports all the Premier League sports all it's nothing to do with with the Saudis and right. and Stavely. and then and you've also that's in, in certain quarters and you've also got some people who have put Saudi Arabian flags <laughs> in their bios on Twitter yeah. and, and 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 things like that and you think so, so sports person's already worked on you hasn't it basically because you don't care about what's happening. You just care about the idea of signing Neymar and all these rumours that, that were coming and Coutinho and Pochettino and all that, which is you know fine. Um, but I want. But the one thing I wanted to say about the, and I'm not commenting on the. You know, I, I I get that whole thing, and I'm not commenting on whether it's right or wrong. But I just wanted to say this this whole thing about um, PSG being the bad guys, Leipzig being the bad guys, Bayern Munich therefore not by default being the good guys. You've got to understand that if if there's no other way for football to be to to, to have more teams in it that uh, in 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 competition yeah. And, yeah. and threatening than 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 ugly what what's perceived dirty ugly money there is yeah. no other way than that. So but the days of Jack Walk is long gone now, isn't it? If yeah, if you believe if you believe that that PSG are wrong and Man City are wrong and Newcastle would have been wrong, then you are absolutely entitled to that opinion. But you have to own the idea. You can never then criticise Real Madrid for winning it five years in a row, or Bayern Munich, or because the, the league, because the, the football world will just be would just be those clubs, the clubs that were that have always been big: Bayern, Barca, Real Madrid, Liverpool, Man United, maybe Juventus. There is no other way to compete with those teams unless you are maybe Atletico Madrid and Borussia Dortmund, who have mastered this sort of conveyor belt thing, but they'll never be a real threat. They might threaten in over a year, but then they'll just lose their players and start again. Whereas the, the so the only way you can really compete is is with is with other money. It's with money coming in and that's invariably going to be a sort of murky ground. So that is a that is a point that needs to be made. So if you so and this whole thing of, of it's not just buying about buying being the good guys. Bayern have also almost become like this sort of underdog, like not underdog story, but like really positive sort of like beacon of light. Like people saying, people saying that, um, you know, people saying that. Oh, this whole this whole thing about buying the team costing eighty million pounds, and it's I like okay, seen, fine, yeah. but yeah. but let's 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 see why that is, and the reason that is is because the German German football is basically the idealist version of football should be but what it does is it shows what it would end up being so so Bayern Munich so there's so, so 18 or 19 clubs over in Leipzig and uh, have a fan owned and it's all brilliant right but Bayern Munich own that league right the only team that can beat Bayern Munich are Bayern Munich and they have a monopoly on every even Dortmund players if they are if, if yeah. most mostly if, if, if they're good enough for Bayern Bayern will buy them and that and so that's why they can they can buy uh, they can buy players cheap because they just they use basically the Bundesliga as their sort of like market and because the other teams aren't rich enough like a Man City like you know in the Premier League even like a Crystal Palace or a or a, an Everton can charge fifty million pounds for one of their players now that isn't the same in in, in the Bundesliga because they don't have that financial clout so they can buy really good players for twenty fifteen twenty million pounds and then develop them further. There are other cases to that in terms of maybe Alfonso Davis, who is, who's been a superstar overnight and nobody really expected that. But in, in reality, they just buy really good players for cheap prices because the Bundesliga is, is, doesn't, is kind of sheltered from the rest of the world in that sort of sense. Well, yeah, and then they I, build them up. I was going to say, not, not only that, but it's, it's kind of, you, you get the impression that Dortmund, etc., would rather sell to Bayern than to an English club or to a French club. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know where that comes from. It makes no sense to me. But yes, yeah, so, so Bayern can basically just hoover up the best of, of the Bundesliga talent, can't they, year in, year and, out? And okay, Leipzig is a little bit different to all the other sort of things yeah. because they've got Red Bull. They've got Red Bull on the thing. But I don't want to go on about Newcastle on, on, uh, in, in both things, but they do sort of fit into both arguments about Leipzig and PSG. So we've talked about the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund and how and how that's wrong in the same in line with 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 um with PSG, but also, you know, okay, um, Red Bull Leipzig are called Red Bull Leipzig, which makes it worse, and it's even it's even sort of magnified because they're in German football because all the other teams are fan owned. But if you compare that to Newcastle, the only difference between Red Bull Leipzig and Newcastle United is 
Newcastle United aren't called Sports Direct Newcastle United, <laughs> but they're effectively the same thing. Yeah, they're yeah, effectively a, yeah. a, 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 a team, a club that is being used and geared towards this this brand, yeah. and uh, that just happens to be cheap tat rather than a rather than a, a, a sports drink. But it's basically the same thing. If they were, you know, but it doesn't get spoken about, and and it, again, it, it, it's worse because the branding is obvious. The branding it's in the badge that they've all got the same badge effectively, Leipzig and Salzburg and. Red Bull and New York Red Bulls and, and the team that's in Brazil that they've got as well, um, and they're also called Red Bull, and so so they so their identity is subverged. But that's kind of all that's effectively what's happened at Newcastle, but no one really talks about it. So my point about the hypocrisy is you've kind of got to own it if you're going to talk about how wrong football is. You've kind of got to own your other version, which is a very sort of streamlined one, two, three clubs dominating it, and 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 everyone having a little bit of a you know, uh, uh, just trying to sort of fight for, for scraps, really. Because, yeah. you know, the the dream for most clubs in the Premier League is, is, is seventh. And the dream for, you know, everyone other than Bayern Munich in, in, in the Bundesliga is is maybe, you know, other than Dortmund, maybe set maybe third or fourth. And and there's, there's no there's no, uh, no other way of doing that unless you bring in the, the you sort of do a deal with the devil, as, as, it, as it would be. So basically, the conclusion to all that is football is screwed, <laughs> and it's yeah, but, morally bankrupt right across yeah. the board. You've you've got a choice. You've got football is screwed either by either by it being dominated by five clubs, or you've got football is screwed because it's it's getting dirty money involved. And I think in reality, it's probably going it's it, it's going that way, which makes for a more competitive sport. Having said that, um, most of the, the clubs who've won the Champions League have been those sort of traditional clubs over over the years so so who knows but i think yeah i I think that that is a sort of difficult choice you've got to ask and the problem is that too much of the discourse has been about that side being wrong and not acknowledging the other side which is that there's a problem with that which is that that you know that that you've got a four or five clubs dominating because that's the other thing about ffp sorry i keep going i'm going on a bit of a tangent but that's the other thing about ffp People talk about FFP uh, being this sort of saviour, but all it did really was, if you're going to punish Man City for doing what they did, all it really does is just realign the likes of Manchester United and Liverpool or, or whoever, you know, the, the already the clubs who are already rich enough through revenue and fans and whatever and, 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 and natural gains or whatever people would call it. That just puts them back in power again. Absolutely. So well, you, that... you, you've, got your, you've got your choice. As a City fan, um, I've just been baffled by the criticism of City and the the kind of defending of FFP from certain clubs where you think, well, if you take FFP out of this, you've got a real chance of breaking into the top four with, you know, the owner of it. I mean, Leicester's one, Charlie. You know, your owner is is a billionaire owner. Take FFP out of the equation. You guys can really spend. There's there's 100% issues with the FFP model, uh, and I totally agree uh, from a city fan point that it was put in, you know, as as partly put in to to stop new money attacking old money. Yeah. Um, just just to touch on a couple of things with RB Leipzig, um, obviously because it's a completely different kettle of fish to what we're talking about from the likes of Manchester City or Paris Saint Germain, um, and I, I I understand Harry's point about about you know Newcastle United perhaps being used as a vehicle to market sports direct but I guess the difference with RB Leipzig is I mean they've completely circumvented the the 50 plus one rule in Germany uh they weren't allowed to be called Red Bull Leipzig so they're called Racing Bull Sport Leipzig but everyone refers to them you know we've referred to them many times already on this podcast Red Bull Leipzig the BT sports commentators in their semi-final were saying Red Bull Leipzig and you know (laughs) it's a marketer's dream they're rubbing their hands together because it's exactly what they want um, and I think the key difference here is this was a you know semi-professional club that was bought in sort of the fourth or fifth division, and they've you know they've pumped money into it. They've completely changed you know everything. It's a branding exercise, and all the club exists as now is a marketing exercise to market a sort of any a global energy sports drink. If you were to take uh, the Qataris out of PSG, if you were to take Mike Ashley out of Newcastle United, if you were to take uh, the state of Abu Dhabi out of Manchester City, all those clubs still have a really proud heritage. They still have a history, proud traditions, a fan, a loyal fan base. Nothing changes. If you take Red Bull out of Leipzig, the club doesn't exist. It is literally there to facilitate Red Bull. So when we talk about, yes, I, I, I do see the point of, of, of using, you know, Sports Direct or, or other things to market certain clubs, but Leipzig are different in the sense that, that they literally 
you know, exist to serve one purpose and it is not to be a football club. Okay. Well, let's look at one of the clubs um, in the Champions League final this Sunday who, you know, is very different to Leipzig, of course. Um, but still, you know, it's, it's, it's a club that has had a lot of money injected into it um, with the purposes of, well, some people are saying, you know, sports washing and to improve the, the kind of um, reputation of the owners. Um and from that, they've bought players like Neymar and Mbappe, and they've, they've got to the Champions League final. So it might pay off for them on Sunday. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. One of the key players there, uh, of course, is Neymar. Um, I'm really interested to know what you guys think of Neymar. I hear I, I, from one side to the other, I really do, on a kind of monthly basis. Um, Charlie, where does he reside among the true greats of the modern game? Where, where, where does he reside alongside up there with you know, Messi and Ronaldo, is he in, the, in their company? Um, I think if, if you're asking right now, uh, I think he's, for me, probably the second best player in the world behind Lionel Messi. Right. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo has, has dropped off somewhat. He's become a, you know, a phenomenal goal scorer, an absolute machine. But in terms of his overall game, uh, he's, not, he's not what he once was. Having said that, over the last decade, I don't think Neymar comes close to what Messi and Ronaldo have done. Um, yeah. He's not in the same stratosphere. He is you know the third the top top five player in the world as he has been for the last five or six years but he's not he's never even come close as as hardly any players in the in the history of the game have to meeting Messi and Ronaldo standards so I think for me right now I mean the way he's playing um recently has been phenomenal you look at that Atalanta sem, uh, semi sorry not semi-final quarter-final uh they were without, without Verratti they were without Mbappe they were without Di Maria he carried the team on his back. Yes, he missed a couple of easy chances, but he was—he ran the entire game. Yeah. The, you could almost argue that the reason they the reason they went through is solely down to Neymar's contribution and performance. Um, and then, obviously, in the semi-final, um, that ridiculous flick for the De Maria goal—you um, know, so many runs, so many take-ons. You know, when he's at it, and I think this is obviously the criticism levelled at him—is that you know his, his off-field antics, or or is he interested, or can he be consistent enough? But when he's at it, there are so few better than him. Do you go along with that, Harry? Yeah, uh, I, I, I sort of take your point, Steve, about changing month by month. And like, to give an example of that, I wrote a piece a few, months, a few months ago. He'd been injured to the point where he played. It was a point where he literally played and been injured for the exact same amount of games. Mm. And that made me write a piece saying that his £200 million move to PSG is the worst in history. If you think of literally how much money it's cost, in terms of, and at the time it was a uh, hundred, or at the time it was 120 million pounds more than Pogba, which is the second most uh, a player had cost at the time. Um, he he went to get away from Messi to to get himself into into the conversation for the Ballon d'Or. He definitely regressed further away. He was unquestionably the third best player in the, on the planet when he left Barcelona. Probably, you know, he, 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 that was a debate that probably he would probably lose at that point. Um, back on the form, similarly as, as, as has been alluded by Charlie, I think that that he he is back on that form now. But um, you know he he was further away from the Ballon d'Or conversation. He'd been brought in by PSG to win the Champions League at the time; they were nowhere near it. Now, obviously, that that there's a shootout for him to win it, and that 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 argument is is less valid because and because he, as has been pointed out, has dragged them to that to that moment from. Um, from the st- from the start of this mini tournament, he's been fantastic. Yeah. Um. The trouble for me is that, as I say, he it, it's more than a coincidence. He's always injured in March, which is always around his fifth <laughs> birthday and whatever. It's it's like when how can you how can you sort of be seen as this sort of like great player like Messi wouldn't and then and then when you think about that and then you and then you have think about the, the fact that he has the audacity to say. Oh, I want. Oh, it's because I was in Messi's shadow that was the problem. That's not the problem, Neymar. The problem is that you're too busy doing other things to, <laughs> to focus yourself. And you know, and so so, I, I, he, he he. In one sense, you can't you can't have the the um, the the bar be be Messi and Ronaldo because they are better than pretty much any. Yes, that's true. Arguably, the two greatest players ever. Yeah. So if they are at the bar, then it's very unfair. But at the same time, he's not done enough to to get the best out of his career. He's 28 now. He's not this young, sort of young kid. When he came up, my favourite version of Neymar remains the 2012 
Olympics. I saw him at Middlesbrough and saw him at Newcastle. That version when he was at Santos. That when he was sort of and after he won the Pushkas Award for that brilliant goal in twenty eleven. Yeah, that's my best, it? yeah. That's my favourite version of Neymar because he was raw. He was just playing. He was he was he, he everything was in front of him. Now he, it's just a bit tiresome with him. So mm. I go up and down. And the trouble is for him that he's gone away from one shadow in Messi and come into another one with Mbappe, who actually arrived after him as well. So he, he had free run for about a year at PSG. Had a, started arguing with Cavani about about um, about taking penalties. And that, for me, it's indicative of what his problem is, is that that's the memory I have of Neymar's first season. Nothing he did on the pitch, but other than, you know, argue with, with, the, with the club's penalty taker about who should take the penalty and, and start this sort of divide in the dressing room. Um, it's sort of similar to, I don't know if you've read Craig Bellamy's books, Steve, about what happened with Rubinho at Man City. It sort of reminds me very similarly of that, where he yeah. sort of steps through the door and it's kind of like, I'm the king now. And, and you know, there's this sort of divide. And, and it kind of reminded me a bit like that. And um, Craig Bellamy being Craig Bellamy was never going to stand, stand by. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Um, but, but, um, but, but that's, not, that's my problem with Neymar, I think, is that, is that he, he is, for me, a phenomenal footballer. And I'll, he's not a show pony. He's not the Justin Bieber of football, as Joey Barton once eloquently put it. He is a fantastic footballer, but the problem with him is that he can be that fantastic footballer one week, and then he can be either injured or, you know, in a in a, in suspicious circumstances, picking a fight with somebody or wanting to leave the next. And that's the problem. That's why he'll never, he'll never ever, in my mind, go down as one of these as the player he really should have. Okay. Um. Right, let's turn to the last of the four then, Bayern Munich. Um, time's come up against us, so there was a kind of little section on how good Bayern are and why they're so good. I think everyone knows why Bayern Munich is so good and, and the players they've got and you know, Lewandowski and Davis and, and all the rest of it. And, and Muller, I believe, is, is integral to Bayern and kind of his versatility, in-play versatility, is so crucial to them. Um, and then you've got Hans Flick as well, their coach who since he's come in last November, he's just kind of put a smile on, on the squad's face again and enjoying their football again. I just want to look at the kind of flip side to that, or more accurately, to see if there is a flip side. Charlie, did Bayern have any weaknesses? Um, it doesn't seem like it, but I would say, having watched the, the Leon semi-final, that the first 15 minutes, Leon could have been 2-0 up. Yeah. Um, Bayern play with incredible intensity, and it's something that Hans Flick has brought to the table since he's been in charge. Um, they, they overwhelm teams. You look at the 7-1 versus Spurs, the, you know, there are two results against Chelsea, the 8-2 mauling of Barcelona. They will press teams relentlessly who try and play out from the back. And, you know, it's so easy to, for the game to just get, you know, overwhelmed too much for teams. And they just kind of submit to this, you know, utter domination. But if you can play through the press, if you can get at them, they're there is vulnerabilities there in that back line. And I do think two players with the individual quality of Neymar and, you know, the blistering pace of Mbappe and, you know, even Di Maria, we kind of saw him operating as a false nine in the semi-final. Mm. I think that, you know, over Riccardi, and I think that might be what uh, Thomas Tuchel goes for, you know, ops for in this final as well. Um, but there's definitely defensive frailties in it. And if PSG can get an early goal, you never know. Well, that's an interesting point as well, particularly well that point there, because they've only been behind for 22 minutes in 2020, which is unbelievable um, I th- believe it was Sam Lee I can't recall now but someone brought it up on Twitter that um, there's an interesting note there that Bayern aren't used to being behind so should they go behind Harry it might well be where we see a slightly different Bayern Munich a slightly panicked Bayern Munich is that a possibility? Definitely um, I think if you ask for the weaknesses I, I, I'm not a fan of uh, Jerome Boateng. I don't think I've ever really been a big fan, but yeah, I, I, I hate him at, at Manchester City, and I'm very kind of contentious point. But I will say this: he's the only coward I've ever seen play in a Manchester City shirt. Um, yeah, it's staggering to me the right. level he, he, he went on to reach. I couldn't believe that because when I saw him, it was I didn't rate him at all. Yeah, I, I, I've never you know um, seen him as the sort of world class defender that, no. that other people have. Even when he was at, you know, at his pomp at Bayern, he certainly looked past it now. So there's a there's a there's a weakness, and they do play a high line. And the, you know, Leon and Barca, people forget about Barca now because it was eight two, and that's the story. But Barca 
for the first 15, 20 minutes, it was sort of tip the tap for a bit and they missed chances. They scored, obviously, it was one all at one stage as well. So if PSG can put the chances away that particularly Leon missed, mm. then yeah, maybe. But the, tr- the trouble is that if you get past that back line, Neuer just looks so big in goal when he makes himself big. He just looks so imposing and he, he just stands. It's very difficult to get past Neuer more than sort of most goalkeepers in, in a weird sense. Um, so so I, I, I do, I think PSG are uh, well-placed to, to put those chances away because, but it, because they have so much attacking quality, but they need Neymar to do what he has. I mean, Neymar's had also, the, the, the flip side of that is Neymar's had Countless chances in both the quarters and the yeah, seven yeah. and missing yeah. both. So, so he needs to improve that. But, um, but, but it's definitely not a fog. The following conclusion: everyone thinks it will be, especially if in the first first fifteen minutes, it reminds me a lot of Liverpool at Anfield. I always said this, even under Brendan Rodgers and Europe, particularly Jurgen Klopp and Brendan Rodgers. If you get past the first twenty minutes against Liverpool at Anfield, you might have a chance of getting a result. It doesn't matter who you are. We've yeah. seen Crystal Palace win there and things. You know, if you get but the trouble is that so many teams succumb in that first twenty minutes. They just get absolutely blitzed and they can't handle it. Um, and Bayern tried that against Barca, um, and they conceded chances and they conceded the goal. But they realised, I think, what they realised against Barca was that they could get them, and they got them really, really good in the end. I think they might if they try that against PSG. This is the trouble for Panzer Flick is that. If, it, if they try that against PSG, then it might not work work out so well because PSG have have probably the best. They're probably going to be the best balanced team that they've played in in 2020. So, so yeah. those those stats about going behind might be put to the test. Well, that's the thing that that's what I find so fascinating about this final. Um, the kind of cliche for any preview for any big game is to say that it'll be won or lost in midfield. This time I'm looking at it and midfield barely features in my thinking. It's really against, you know, kind of uh, Bayern's high back line against Mbappe. Um, and at the other end, you know, Bayern won't find it easy against this PSG defence. I mean, for all the talk about Neymar and Mbappe, uh, PSG have conceded 31 goals in 47 games across this season. Uh, that's a goal every 136 minutes. I mean, they've got a watertight defence. So, with that in mind, um, the kind of big prediction, um, Charlie, your prediction for the Champions League final? Yeah, I mean, uh, PSG do have a great defence, but I just think Bayern are so relentless up front. I mean, for, for me, if the Ballon d'Or had taken place this year, I think Robert Lewandowski would have been pole position to win it. Yes. Um, yeah. I think I'm right in saying if he scores a hat-trick in the final, he'll be the leading Champions League goal scorer for a single season, yeah. despite the fact that we've had single like uh, knockout stages in the quarterfinals onwards, which is absolutely ridiculous. Um, so yeah, as as opposed to the the KG affair I'm anticipating in the Europa League final, I'm going to say four two to Bayern Munich. Okay, and just a quick note on Lewandowski. When I was making notes for this part, um, I moved on to Bayern, and I was just writing notes about Lewandowski. I thought I best move on to someone else. I mean, his his stats are incredible I mean not just this season of course going right back throughout his career but particularly in the Champions League this season it's unbelievable um, Harry what's your predictions for the final I'm not going to make a score prediction I'm going to make a betting prediction and I'm not going to put odds in there but I'm going to say over 2.5 goals with Bayern win right. um, I think okay. that, that's as far as I'm going to go I don't know about the scoreline but I just think there's going to be goals and Bayern will come out on top uh, in terms of Lewandowski, uh, I think there should be a, p- a petition to get him the Ballon d'Or because <laughs> yeah. that hasn't. It, it, it sort of feels a little bit sort of not short-sighted is, is the is the least thing you can say. The, the, the kindest thing you can say about it because I think since Messi and Ronaldo's domination started in two thousand eight, I don't think there's been a more obvious winner outside the two of them in a season that, yeah. than yeah. Lewandowski. Because if you you know if you take into account the fact that he's had no second legs, and he's as as Charlie said, three goals away from beating Ronaldo's record of of seventeen in a single season. That's ridiculous. But fifty fifty five goals he scored this season um, in all competitions. He's gonna. I think if, if did they win the treble? If they win, if they win the Champions League, did they win the, yeah, the, the, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the Champions like League? So, so they're gonna win the treble. He scored fifty five goals. It's not like the last time when they won the treble. It was like, oh, was Robin better than Ribéry, or was Neuer better? This is obviously. Lewandowski's year 
So it seems really, 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 really cruel that the pandemic making it, you know, making it unfair when when the races run. There's only one winner because Messi. You can't give it to Messi if his if his team is not got eight two in the semi final of the Champions League. You can't give it to Ronaldo if he didn't make it to the semi final and only you know and hasn't really done anything. So the, so the the political argument that that the Ballon d'Ors just become is null because neither of those two deserves it. And I've been a Messi. I've been sort of a, a I've, I've defended Messi pretty much every year and said Messi deserves it because he's Messi. But actually this year there's a reason to give it to somebody else because. Lewandowski's had a great season by Messi's standards. I think that's the key. Yeah, Lewandowski yeah. just hasn't had a great season by anybody's standards. He's had a season that is that if Messi had this season, it would be wow. Messi's had a brilliant season, <laughs> and that's the kindest thing you can say about Lewandowski's year. So there's no way he doesn't deserve this Ballon d'Or, and especially if they win the Champions League, there, there should definitely be some sort of. I, I actually wouldn't be surprised if they did some sort of like government U-turn type thing. Yeah, and, and, and brought it back and gave it to him. Yeah, I think I genuinely think that there needs to be some sort of call for it because the, the, the argument that it's unfair on others is null anyway because there's nobody who deserves it at all other than him. Yeah, I mean, before the semi finals, I wrote a preview for a betting site and I worked out that he'd scored a goal every 55 minutes in the Champions League to, to that point. And I had to go over it. I went over it three times. I was like, I must have made a mistake here. <laughs> it's Every 55 minutes is not human. And yet it was no. every 55 minutes. Um, okay, now it's a good time to wrap things up. Before we do, Harry, where can listeners kind of find you on Twitter and in print? Um, in print, uh, I don't know at the moment because of, uh, because of the pandemic. <laughs> uh, but everything I, uh, everything I write is on um, is on Twitter at Harry the Cosmo. Um, so right. you can just follow me there and, that's, uh, and, and you'll get everything there. Okay. And thanks very much for joining us today, mate. And Charlie, where can kind of listeners um, find you in print and on Twitter? Yep. So if you, if you want to find me online on social media, my Twitter handle is charliejc93. Um, you can kind of find my fingerprints all over the Copper 90 website in terms of written content. But for printed work, uh, I check out these football times in No Place Like Home Some magazine. Great stuff, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I read very little football these days I'm embarrassed to say and that is one thing I do read because there's some great stuff on there um, well thank you very much both I really enjoyed that and um, hopefully we'll have you guys on again if, if you're willing um, thanks Harry yeah cheers to the album happy to come back whenever you want me to lovely cheers mate and thanks Charlie yeah my pleasure Stephen and as ever thank you very much listeners for tuning in and for well for listening um, so there's just two games left of the season after this Saturday night, we can put football on the back burner, take a few trips to B&Q, maybe get round to putting up those shelves. There's a couple of weeks on a sandy beach to look forward to, not to mention Glastonbury and Wimbledon. What do you mean the Community Shields next week? What a strange, strange year this is. Take care of yourselves, everyone, and forever up the blues.